My name is Danny Evans. I'm one of the pastors here at Windsor Community Church. Kind of brought this on myself. The last two weeks I've been talking about suffering and trials. Ultimately, when you talk about those things in God's Word, it is going to affect your life. And so this week, to be honest, has been a tough week. There's been a lot of trials this week. And it seemed like every time I was about to sit down and have some time to prepare the message, another wave at trials would come crashing in and I would just not have the time or my heart just wouldn't be in the right setting whenever it happened. That's kind of what God does. He, he brings context into your life when you go into His Word. And I thank Him for that. I thank Him that He brings those trials to help me to understand His Word in a deeper, more personal way this week. Definitely get more out of it that way when it's affecting your life specifically. So we'll trust the Lord with this time today that though I don't think I had as much time to prepare, I know God's in control of that and His Word will not come back void today and we'll get to hear from the Lord. good friend of mine, mentor Tom Harkis, was our, our pastor at Mountain View Community Church for many years. He used a, an illustration that I think will help kind of get us in the right frame of mind today and many of his messages. And, and this illustration of the story went something like this. Um, there's a captain of a ship, and it's dark at night, and he's going along, and he sees this light in the distance. And so he calls down to a signalman, and he sends him a message to say, alter your course 10 degrees to the south. And then promptly a return message comes from where the light is coming from, and it says, alter your course 10 degrees to the north. And so this captain, he becomes angry, and he's angry because his command is ignored. So he sends out a second message, and he says, alter your course 10 degrees to the south. I am the captain. A reply comes back, and it says, no, alter your course 10 degrees to the north. I am seaman third class Jones. Immediately, the captain sent a third message knowing the fear it would invoke. Alter your course 10 degrees to the south. I am a battleship. Then the reply came, alter your course 10 degrees to the north. I am a lighthouse. And that point is that so frequently in our lives we think we're going maybe down the right path and we don't listen to these warning signs. And we maybe are on course for shipwreck, on course to hit land. And we don't even listen to those warnings. Today we're going to talk about our conscience. And we're going to talk about having a clear conscience in our lives and what that looks like as a Christian. And we're going to talk about today that Paul is going through some circumstances that he had in a misunderstanding with the church in Corinth. And we're going to talk about how he had a clear conscience in regards to that. Now, last week I talked about the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians and it was all about comfort and how the God of all comfort will comfort us during trials. And he will comfort us in our suffering. He will come alongside us in our suffering and trials. I brought up as an illustration a book called 90 Minutes in Heaven. And so I've heard from some of you that were concerned about my illustration of this book. And so I kind of want to spend a couple minutes to talk about why I use this book. And 
I use this book because in verse 9 last week, it talks about how God has the power to raise the dead. And then verse 10, it talked about how Paul had been delivered, though he despaired of his life, he thought him and his ministry team could possibly die, that he was delivered from that. And why was he delivered? By the prayers of the saints in the church in Corinth. 90 Minutes in Heaven, some of you have read it and some of you hadn't. And the book is about a guy who dies and goes to heaven. My wife started reading this. I thought, oh no, here goes another one of these crazy books about someone seeing the afterlife. And many of you have probably heard these stories about people that go to the afterlife. And a lot of them are just way off. I mean, they're not even close to what the Bible says about heaven. My wife said, you got to read it, you got to read it. So I finally read it, sat down and read the book. This interpretation by Don Piper, Don Piper is a pastor. When he was in heaven, it was very close to what it's like in Revelation, what John describes the present heaven like in Revelation. You know, after reading this book, I don't really believe Don Piper was out there to make a buck. In fact, he wrote this book some 15 plus years after his accident, after his experience in heaven. So I'm sure he... You know, pondered even telling this story. I mean, if you hear about this guy, he probably wishes he would have died. He died in this horrific car accident. He probably wishes he died. And if you read the book, you understand why. Because this man went through amazing pain and suffering that you'd wish on no person. He had this brace on his leg that had to be there for a long time that caused constant pain. And he even says that he never really has gone a day much in his life without pain. And so I believe that he wrote this really to glorify God. To be honest with you, I use this illustration, and my conscience is clear on this. That's what I'm trying to say, is my conscience is clear on using this illustration because I think that it tied in so well, those verses last week, of God having the power to raise the dead. And he rose down Piper because a righteous man, another pastor, came over and prayed for him while he's in the car. And God listened to that prayer. He answered that prayer and brought him back to life. Just as Paul was delivered from the perils of death by the prayers of the saints in Corinth, so was Don Piper brought back to life. My conscience is clear on that, on using that illustration, but I did want to kind of reemphasize and, and explain myself a little better today. And we'll see, that's what Paul does today. Paul, though there is a minor issue with his change in travel plans, he spends a great deal of time, he'll spend these 13 verses today explaining himself and why he made these changes. And it was really just a misunderstanding about his change in travel plans. Paul spends great detail to talk about why he made these. Though he could have just blown it off and said, you know, it's just a change in plans. These guys are crazy. They're not, I, don't, I don't want to even waste my time. He doesn't. He spends time and he addresses the issue and he communicates with them in clear order. Got to kind of back us up and give us some context of where we are. We're in 2 Corinthians. Paul starts this church in a city called Corinth. And this city is very immoral. It's very worldly. And he starts a church there and he starts a work of God and spreads the gospel in this town of Corinth. And he's there around 18 months. And then he departs to go on other missions to start other churches. After his departure, he finds out that these men came in and they're starting to spread lies. And they're starting to attack Paul's credibility and character and really his status as an apostle. They're attacking that. 
And they're called the false apostles. So Paul comes back and he has to make what's called a painful visit. And we'll look at this in 2 Corinthians in more detail. He comes back and makes this painful visit where he goes and confronts these false apostles on what they're teaching. Yet to his dismay, the church does not come around him, does not defend him. And so he leaves Corinth deeply hurt by the church in Corinth. And this is probably some of the lowest times in his ministry. And then he feels led by God to write what's called the severe letter. And we don't have this letter, but he writes this severe letter back to the church. And he waits for some time before he finally hears back from Titus. And Titus comes back and tells him that, hey, there's good news. The church now, the majority of them have repented from their allegiance to these false apostles. And so that is when he writes this second letter to the church in Corinth. And we call it today Second Corinthians. That's where we are today. We're in 2 Corinthians. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 24. And these verses really are a response from this misunderstanding about this slight change in travel plans. Major theme really of this whole book is Paul's defense of his apostleship against these false apostles. And these false apostles are really saying that, you know, Paul has changed these travel plans, so he's kind of not really a man to be trusted. He's really a liar. And if he's lying to you about these travel plans, then you know what? Everything he preached to you, everything he taught to you is a lie. And you should not believe in what Paul said, but believe in us. We got all the answers. We'll see today that these guys are really grasping at straws to attack Paul in this area. But we will see the amazing patience of Paul and how he spends a lot of detail and a lot of time going through to properly communicate why he's changed his plans. And we're going to be able to learn some great things from this today. There's going to be basically three lessons we're going to learn from this misunderstanding. And I think this is directly related with our lives. How many of you guys out there deal with difficult people? Nobody. Okay, a couple truthful people. Some difficult situations. Maybe you had a difficult situation this week. All right? Anyone with difficult situations in their life? Yeah. I work for the city of Loveland. If you work for a city or a municipality or the government, you are what? You're a servant. You're a public servant. You're paid by the people to work for them. Every year, we have to go to a class on how to deal with difficult people. And we've got to be trained on how to deal with difficult people because we can't be out there in a difficult situation and then go off on them and go crazy, right? We need to do this properly because we are public servants. And so I go to these classes and really, you know, these classes show you in worldly ways how to deal with them. The text today tells you a godly way and how to deal with difficult situations and how God can use these difficult situations for his good and his glory. And we're going to look at that. And these three lessons we're going to talk about today is the first one we're going to talk about is a clear conscience. That when we go through things and dealings in our life, we want to look at the importance of listening to our conscience and obeying that and trying to deal with things with a clear conscience, clearing our conscience when we have these dealings and difficult things in our life. Now we're going to move on in verses 15 through 18. We're going to look at the need to make sure that we are dealing with people in an open and honest way, with honesty and integrity in the way we act and the way we live. And then finally we'll see this in the text that Paul says we should do everything ultimately for the glory of God. 
that the only way we can deal with people with a clear conscience, with honesty and integrity and sincerity and heart, living a life before the world, is that we be filled with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit be our guide, that we be dependent on the Holy Spirit, that that is the only way that we'll be any different than the world is when we deal with people. It's because we have the power of the Holy Spirit to empower us to be different, to deal with even minor misunderstandings in a way that would glorify God and put Him on display. So, welcome you to this time. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, thank you for this time, and I thank you for the trials uh, in my life this week. Though I wanted to have time to work and and prepare a message, Lord, you had difficult circumstances, difficult people, difficult situations placed before me continuously in wave after wave. Lord, Lord, I didn't understand it. I didn't know why it happened. Lord, you spoke to my heart today and this week that you did that because you love me. And you love all of us in a special way. Even when difficult situations and trials and hardship happen in our life, you are there to lift us up. You're there to comfort us. And Lord, even this text today, that you will teach us how to deal with difficult situations and, and how to go about having a clear conscience and how to go about it honestly and openly and how to go living and walking in the Spirit through these tough trials. And so, Lord, I, I know you even edited my message this morning as I was looking through it, and I pray that you will just continue to edit this, that I would be empty of myself, that everything I've written, everything I've prepared, I would just lay it at your feet. And, Lord, that you would speak, because my words are worth nothing, yet your words are gold. And it's the only thing we can cling to and live to is your words and your truth. So, Lord, have your way with me. Have your way with all of us here. Open our hearts to hear from you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. For in only that we'll be changed and transformed and etched more into your image. In your name, amen. All right, so we're in 2 Corinthians. So if you would turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to start in verse 12, and we're going to just look at 12 through 14. Verse 12 says, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience... That in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially towards you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. All right, the first thing I want to talk about, right, is the conscience. Having a clear conscience. So first let's look at this word conscience. Conscience is derived from two words, con and science. And the word con really means with. And the word science means knowledge or to know. So the conscience is that inner faculty that knows with our spirit and approves when we do right, but accuses when we do wrong. Now the conscience is not the law of God. And the conscience is not the Holy Spirit. Some people sometimes confuse that. If that were the case, if the conscience was the Holy Spirit, then all of us, every single human, would be a believer. And we know that's not true. 
the conscience does work alongside the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit works with the conscience and there's this interaction between the two and how the Holy Spirit can train and teach the conscience and it can even use the law of God that it can teach the conscience through the law of God which is right and which is wrong. So they work in an amazing, mysterious way together, the Holy Spirit, the law of God and the conscience in the believer's life. They work together to teach and train each other for obedience and submission to God's will and self-control. As I said, everyone has a conscience. God designed us. He made us. He hardwired it into us, into our nervous system and our mental capabilities. We have this thing we can't see, but it's called a conscience. And that's why there are people in this world who do not know God Yet they're very moral and upright. And you ask, well, how can they be so moral and upright? How can they do so many good things and do right things and moral things, yet they don't know God? Well, what do they do? They obey their conscience. They're like Jiminy Cricket. They hear him, they obey Jiminy Cricket. They listen to that guy, and they obey it. And so they are just people that have good self-will to listen to their own conscience. The conscience is our moral rudder. It's also known as a moral rudder that directs us like a boat does to the right path. The rudder directs the boat to the right path. It's also called a window to our soul. Yet when we don't listen to our conscience, when we disobey it, it gets cloudy. And that light is not allowed to shine in. So if we don't obey our conscience, we get what? We get a guilty conscience, right? We get what's known as a guilty conscience. We feel guilty when we disobey our conscience. Now, if we continue to disobey our conscience, our conscience becomes seared. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul describes it this way. Verses 1 and 2, he says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. So the conscience is also really an alarm clock and for what we know, what we're doing right or wrong. And, and a seared conscience is like the alarm clock going off and you stick in your pillow over your head. You don't want to get up. You don't want to listen to it. And really even a seriously seared conscience is that alarm clock going off full blast as loud as possible and you are dead asleep. It's that conscience that has been disobeyed over and over again that it is damaged. The conscience has become damaged that it can't even figure out right from wrong. Someone said, she won't listen to her conscience. She doesn't want to take advice from a total stranger. A mother asked her son if he knew the difference between conscious and conscience. He said, sure, mom, conscious is when you're aware of something. Conscience is when you wish you weren't. Paul operated with a good and clear conscience. We see in Acts chapter 24, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before man. And Paul used this word conscience 23 times in his letter in Acts. And Paul felt this was very important in the life of a Christian. In fact, he requires it for those in leadership. Let's look in verse 
12 through 14. Notice the repeated use in verses 12 through 14 of the terms we and us and our. See, Paul is part of a ministry team, and that's why he uses this repeatedly. He uses we, us, and our. He's part of this team, and we're going to talk about that more in detail later as he even talks about who is on this team. And as part of this team, they appeal to the highest court, really, in our human realm, and that is the court of conscience. And they said that our conscience, our collective conscience, exonerates us of the charges brought against them. So it's exonerating them of making these changes in their travel plans of this whole misunderstanding. They feel like collectively their conscience, they went before God and they talked it through and it seems like they said, no, you know, in making these travel plans, we did this with honesty, we did this with integrity, and it also says in holiness and sincerity by the grace of God, we did these things because we love this church. We made these change in our travel plans. How do you feel when you are misunderstood? How do you feel when people make presumptions about you and assume you think certain things or act in a certain way? How does that make you feel? Well, the first thing when we go through difficult situations and trials and there's maybe some miscommunication is we have to ask ourselves, is there anything about this situation that God condemns? We've got to go before God and we've got to listen to our conscience and see what it says. And then we go to God's word and see what it says and listen to the Holy Spirit through this whole situation. And really examine ourselves to see if there anything that we particularly have done wrong. Is there any grudge that I'm bearing against this person in this difficult situation? Is there anything that is keeping me from loving this person in, in a way that honors God? Or is my conscience clear on this whole thing? And that's what this ministry team did. They went before God and they sought God and they went through their Holy Spirit and listened to their conscience to make sure they were acting in a right way to glorify God. Now, if we have done something wrong, if we go before God and we feel like in a certain situation we have done something wrong, then what are we to do? We're to confess that to God. First, we need to confess that to God and, and, and acknowledge that we've wronged God in this situation. And then if we've wronged someone else, we need to go to them and we need to acknowledge we've wronged them and seek forgiveness, seek restoration in that process. Now, however, if you've gone before God and you feel like you have a, a clear conscience in a certain situation, we'll see we're not to just blow it off and just go on down the road. But we'll see what Paul did is he went to these people and he opened up the lines of communication. And so if there's a misunderstanding between someone and your conscience is clear, you probably have not wronged them in any way, then maybe the next step is just open dialogue to communicate through that whole situation and to bring out really what's going on in that situation that maybe God will convict the other person of the wrongdoing in their heart and that God would work through that open and honest dialogue that you would just go before each other and work that whole situation out. And we'll see that's what Paul does today, that he first goes before God and his ministry team to get a clear conscience. And then he says he lives openly and honestly with integrity. And we'll see that here in verses 15 through 18. We see that Paul wants to explain himself and set the matter straight about his change in plans. He wants to make right this misunderstanding and explain why he did such a thing, just change his plans. 
Now these false apostles we see are really jumping all over this slight change in plans and they're blowing it out of proportion. They're pointing all these change in plans to that Paul really is not trustworthy. These false apostles have claimed that Paul is speaking out of both sides of his mouth, basically. He doesn't speak the truth. He says one thing in his letters, and then when he comes here, he's different. And that's what the charges they're, they're bringing against Paul is that. What we'll see as well as explaining why he made these changes, Paul also deals with the deeper issues of honesty and integrity. Look at verses 15 through 17 with me. It says, in this confidence, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. That is to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you be helped by my journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh? So that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. Now, we know if Paul had really a travel plan, it was called Plan A. And this is in the last part of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. He describes what his travel plans were. And the plan to leave Ephesus and then go to Macedonia, which is north of Corinth. And then he wanted to come back to Corinth and spend the winter there. We'll see that in chapter 16, verses 5 through 8 of 1 Corinthians. Yet after writing 1 Corinthians, Paul decided to change his plans and also make a visit to Corinth before he went to Macedonia. So what he's saying here is he wants to make twice the blessing. He wants to go to Corinth and visit with them, then go to Macedonia, and then come back and visit with them again. And so that's his change. They did this, the second trip, because of love for this church in Corinth. They wanted to spend time with these people. They wanted to minister to them and with them and hang out with them. It's really because of their love and loyalty to this church that had abandoned them and to seek restoration and reconciliation with this church body. Now this word vacillating means to change your mind or to waver. And so in verse 17, Paul is basically saying, was I wavering or changing my mind when I intended to visit you? No way. No way. He wanted to visit him no matter what. He wanted to be with him, spend time with him. Paul found it incredible that anyone could construe a change in his travel plans as a dishonest character, as a dishonesty in his character. Paul, as we know from our study in 1 Corinthians, was a man who was blameless, above reproach, that he was an honest man. He dealt with people openly and honestly, and he did that while he was in Corinth, and we see that in his letters in 1 and 2 Corinthians. Now, there were also accusing him of being worldly. We see here in the text that he's doing things according to the flesh or like a non-believer, meaning it's saying that Paul does whatever he wants, whatever is convenient for him. He really doesn't keep his word, right? They're just saying that he talks out of both sides of his mouth. He just does what's good for him. He doesn't think of others. But we see that's not the case, that Paul was honest and did this out of the love of this church, not for his own good, but for the love for them. And in verse 18 it says, But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. Notice in verse 18 it doesn't say yes or no. When we make a commitment, sometimes we need to make a no commitment when we're asked to do some things. Sometimes we have too many invitations to do something, and so we need sometimes to say no. To things. 
Let's look at Matthew chapter 5. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And so what Jesus is really saying is when you make a promise, keep it. This was convicting to me because my kids all the time are badgering me about stuff. You know, you're busy, you're working on something, and they come up, Dad, can you fix my bike? Yeah, yeah, I'll fix your bike later. Just leave me alone, fix your bike. Dad, I need some new shoes. You buy me some new shoes. Just leave me alone. Yeah, I'll buy you some new shoes. And then, you know, a week later, you forgot about that and come back to you. Dad, you said you uh, would buy me some new shoes. Uh, You haven't done that in like a week. When are you going to do it? That's right, I did. So I get convicted. I did promise them, even though it was under duress, I promised to buy the shoes. And now I have to go fulfill my promise to buy the shoes. And so we are to keep our promises. That is a testimony to God that even how small they are, we are to make our yes, yes, and our no, no. And if we make a promise, even if it's a small one, we need to follow through on those things. So not only are we in difficult situations to have a clear conscience, And to work openly and honestly, we see ultimately through these things we need to glorify Christ through all the things that we do. Every difficult situation, the bottom line is to glorify Christ through the situation. Let's look at verses 19 through 24 and really just the first two verses right here. Verse 19 says, For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me, meaning by Paul, and Silvanus and Timothy was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. So once again, we see Paul is part of a ministry team here. He says, not only is there me, but there is Silvanus and is also known as Silas. You probably have heard about Silas in the book of Acts. And Timothy. And as we know from studying through Paul's missionary journeys, he was always with somebody. He initially was with Barnabas. And then he was with Silas. And he was with Timothy. And we see as we read in Scripture that there's Titus, there's Achilla and Priscilla, there's Philemon, there's Epaphroditus. He always had people Around him, He was not acting alone. He saw the value in having people around him as accountability and as strengthened by the spirit of the oneness together and encouraged by being together and part of a team. Now, verse 19 is really a great theological nugget, if you will, or statement. We see here that there is no yes and no about Jesus Christ. Jesus never wavers. Okay? This is basically saying that God, when He says yes, when Jesus says yes, it is an eternal yes. He always makes positive promises. That is the God we have. He never goes back on those. They are the same yesterday, today, and forever. He always makes positive promises. He makes a promise, a positive promise in our life about salvation. He makes a promise to give us peace. He gives us the promise of blessing, the promise of comfort, the promise of forgiveness, and the promise of eternal life. In John chapter 3, Jesus said, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Can I get an amen? 
Amen. He came not to condemn us or judge us. Not the negative, but He came to save. He came to the positive. You look throughout God's Word that His promises are positive. Now, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, then you have the negative. You have the opposite. You're not under God's love and protection. You're under God's wrath. You don't have hope of eternal life with Him. You have the despairing sadness of eternal separation from God. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, He's coming to say, Come to me and you will receive all the positive promises of my blessing and my peace and my joy. You won't be under the negative wrath of God, the negative effects that come from not knowing God that created you and made you and purposed you for a relationship with Him. He's asking you to come and receive the blessing of knowing Him and having eternal life and eternal hope in Him alone. Now this point of a positive promise is is driven home in verse 20 when Paul says, Therefore, also through Him is our Amen to the glory of God. Amen really is an affirmation of truth. And my brother-in-law is black, and I love going to black churches because when the preacher speaks, man, they're saying, Amen! Amen! Hallelujah! They are affirming things. When he speaks and they affirm it, and it's probably, for them in their lives, it's probably not just a verbal, maybe for some it is just a verbal affirmation, but if you can say out loud and you can affirm a truth that the preacher's saying, then it's probably become a reality in your life. You've probably taken that truth and you've meditated on it, and you've gone against trials in your life that have fought against that positive promise, that have told you, Satan has told you, no, that's not true. God doesn't want your best. He doesn't want peace and comfort in your life. He wants horrible things to happen. He wants to take you down. Yet if you've known the comfort of God through those trials and tribulation of life, if you've known the blessing and peace that comes from drawing close to Him, And when that preacher does speak that truth, even though it's tough like we did last week, I said that God will bring comfort during trials. He will not bring comfort during good times. And so it's hard to say amen to trials. It's hard to say amen that God will bring comfort during trials. But that's what this is saying, that you need to affirm that truth. That you need to go before God with that difficult truth that He brings comfort during times of trials, that He brings strength during times of trials. You need to go before Him. When you're going through those trials, seek Him and His dependency. And then when that truth is proclaimed, you can say, Amen. Can I hear an Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. So let's move on. Verse 21. Verse 21 says, that now He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us to God who has sealed and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. These two verses, we have four verbs here that are pointed out that really describe what the Holy Spirit does in the believer's life. The first one is establishes. The Holy Spirit establishes us, and this is a business term that refers to a guarantee or warranty of fulfilling a contract. It's that assurance that a seller gives to a buyer that this product is as good as advertised and that the service will be rendered as promised. See, the Holy Spirit establishes us and is our guarantee or our warranty that we are children of God. Now, I bought an Apple computer. It's got a one-year warranty. 
Thank goodness, we got at least a one-year warranty because I've been in the shop three times. So I think all our Apple guys are gone today. I'm giving them the wrath. This thing has been gone too many times. But for us, thank goodness, as believers in Jesus, we do not have a one-year warranty. Amen? We have a lifetime warranty. Not only do we have this lifetime warranty, we have an eternal lifetime warranty. We have a guarantee stamp that we will live eternity with Christ. And we see these in these other verses that the Holy Spirit also is an anointing us. And anointing means to commission them for service. All Christians have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ at the time of salvation, you are anointed with the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, people only people that were really anointed were those that were prophets and priests and kings. Their anointing equipped them for service. So as we yield to the Spirit, the Spirit enables us to serve God and to live godly lives. We see this in 1 John chapter 2. It says, from the anointing of the Holy One, you will all know. In verse 27, it says, the anointing which is received from Him abides in you. So we are anointed by the Holy Spirit when we come to faith in Christ. And then these next two verbs really go together. The verbs are sealed and, and given as a pledge. And sealed really refers to a stamp. They were stamped with an identity mark. Ephesians chapter 1 puts it this way about the indwelling of the Spirit and about this stamp or pledge. In chapter 1 of Ephesians verses 13 through 14 it says, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. See, right after salvation what happens? You were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Right after salvation you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And then this promise who is given to us as a pledge, the Holy Spirit is given to us as a pledge of our inheritance with a view in the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Another amen, right? Amen. Positive promises of being sealed, permanently sealed, and a pledge, a pledge of eternal life. And I always think about this as, and it's kind of funny, but... When you go to Glenwood Springs, you, I just think of Glenwood Springs when I go swimming there. When you leave, they stamp this thing on your hand and you can't see it. And I put that stamp on there, like, huh, that's kind of weird. But if you put it under the light, it's all really bright, right? It's got this glowy thing, it's kind of cool. Kids love to look at that. It's an invisible thing. Well, that's really what the Holy Spirit is to the believer. It's like that stamp on your whole soul. It's that pledge that God gives us. And it can't be like that stamp. It can't be washed off. It's always there. It's always in there glowing. And so in Jesus, when we go to heaven, God will see us and He will see us glowing because He'll see that stamp within us called the Holy Spirit that's there forever. Now let's look at verse 23 and 24 to wrap us up. Finally, the Holy Spirit will give us understanding when we go through difficult trials and tribulations and we go through difficult situations. The Holy Spirit will give us understanding. Verse 23 says, But I call God as as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth, not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. 
See, the Holy Spirit gave Paul direction on his travel plans. And he even used God as his witness to this new direction. See, he didn't want to spare the church another harsh visit like he had the first time. He wanted to spare them of that harsh vision and possibly give them some time for these people that hadn't repented to repent. He had their best motives in mind. He had a love for them. See, Paul is showing him great patience and he's showing great sensitivity with this church in Corinth. And verse 24 is really a positive disclaimer, if you will, to try and avoid provoking any more unnecessary conflict. He's just trying to communicate openly and honestly. Paul claimed no authority over their faith, we see. And he believed that their faith was a private matter between them and God. And that no one can tell you whether you're saved or not. No one can tell you. And so when I do a baptism class, and usually when I have youth or children in there, I tell them, you know what? Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. And the only way you know that you're saved is it's between you and God. I can't tell you you're saved. Your parents can't tell you you're saved. It's between you and God. And so I point them to Romans chapter 8. And it says in Romans chapter 8 that God's Spirit will testify with our spirit. God's Spirit, big S, will testify with our spirit, small s, that we are a child of God. And so I tell them as a homework assignment, before you're baptized, you have to go before God. Probably at night, in the quietness of your heart where you're laying there and you're just talking to God. It's just you and God. And you've got to ask Him, God, you, am I yours? Am I your child? Speak to me, God, because no one can tell me whether I'm yours or not. Only you. And so your faith is between you and God. And no one can tell you. Not a pastor, not your parents, no one. It's between you and God. Now, I love the next thing Paul says after telling them he's not their spiritual boss, telling them he, he can't be the one to tell them whether they're saved or not. He says this. He says, but we are workers with you for your joy, for your faith is standing firm. We are workers. We are co-workers, co-laborers with you, alongside you, for your joy. We're not your spiritual bosses. We don't lord things over you. We work with you, alongside you. We work to comfort you and come alongside and encourage one another in our walk for Christ. Ray Steadman, a great preacher, he put it this way. He said, we Protestants are right when we say to the Catholics that God never intended to have one man a pope over the whole church. But he goes on to say, yet it is no improvement to have one in every church. Leaders in the church are not bosses. This is a common misconception in our church today. Many churches look to the senior pastor. Yet you never see this in scripture. There are always pastors and elders, never the pastor. So I think Ray Stidman had it right. There are pastors and elders, and that's why at Windsor Community Church, there is no senior pastor. And I love to get that question. Someone will talk to me out there and they'll say, wow, who's so... Who is your senior pastor at Windsor Community Church? I said, well, Jesus. He's, he's the chief shepherd. He's our pastor and shepherd over all of us. And they're like, well, uh, I don't understand that. I'm like, well, we do have elders in our church, or pastors, and we have four of us that are aboard. And then you still see an inquisitical look, like, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, who makes the decisions? 
can't have four guys all making decisions, can you? So we get a great opportunity to tell them, well, you know, we don't make a decision unless it's in unity. So if we can't all get on the same page on something, we don't move forward. So if there's just one of us that's holding out, we won't move forward. We won't move forward until we have complete unity in our decision-making. So many churches are run, see, by this Moses model. Yet, that's not how the church has started. Look back in Acts, that Paul always was part of a team, and he always planted with ministry teams. Acts chapter 14, verse 23 says, Paul and Barnabas, they appointed elders, plural, for them in each church with prayer and fasting, committing them, or the ministry team, to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. See, God's design for the church was not for one guy to be the spiritual boss over a whole church. His design was for a group of men to co-labor, to come alongside everyone else, to encourage them in the furtherance of the gospel, to encourage one another to use our gifts, to encourage one another to walk in the Spirit. They weren't there to lord over their faith. That's not the job of the pastor or the elder, is to lord over our faith and tell you whether you're saved or not and tell you your rights and wrongs. We're to encourage one another to walk in the spirit of the gospel. So today we see that Paul and his ministry team had a clear conscience. They had a clear conscience about their change in travel plans. So they could have blown this out of proportion, right? And they could have just not addressed this issue because it's so trivial, but they went to the deeper issues. They used it as a learning and teaching experience. They went to the deeper issues of talking about conscience and how they operated with a clear conscience. They went to the deeper issues about honesty and integrity. They knew these false apostles were operating in lies and deception, and so they wanted to address that with the believers, and they said, you know, we went before you with honesty and integrity, with sincerity in heart and holiness by the grace of God. We came to you. And then finally, they operated to the glory of God. And everything they did was for the glory of God. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, he says, Whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. So ultimately, that's what it boils down to. is When you come across a difficult trial... You come across someone who's being difficult in your life or a difficult situation in your life. Ultimately, it boils down to, as you as a believer, you need to glorify God through this situation. You need to go before God and clear your conscience. You need to go before these people and open, act openly and honestly. And that the only way we can do that is by the power of that Holy Spirit, that guarantee stamp in us. It's in all of us, believer. It's in all of us to give us the power to do right, to speak honestly, to love others and consider them more important than ourselves. Even when we're being accused wrongly and, and it, there's emotions involved, like I had this week, I had a situation with, with someone where they're, they, were, they were crying and yelling and screaming at me. And even in that situation, I just had to even pray through that situation that God, God, I'm being attacked here. I'm being falsely accused. And I just need to go before you because, Lord, I know that you were falsely accused. Lord, I know that you were attacked. You were treated badly. Yet you, in everything you did, you glorify God through all you do. 
And so we need to go before the throne continuously on a daily basis, sometimes even on a minute basis. Go before Him. Go before Him in prayer and humble obedience and dependency to Him. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I thank You for Your Word and thank You for the difficult trials in my life. Thank You for the difficult conversations that I had this week. And I thank you you brought those and you brought me to my knees in dependency to you. I thank you that I did not have as much time as I felt I needed to prepare this message. But I did have time to be prepared and convicted and changed by these trials. So Lord, I ask for something difficult. I ask for trials for us. And Lord, I know that you bring trials in us no matter what. And they're there for a purpose. They're there to convict us and change us and, and bring us more into the image of you. That we depend less upon ourselves and we depend more upon you. Lord, I pray that you would use Windsor Community Church in a significant way in this community. That when trials come, we would cling to one another and we would cling to you, the God of all creation that has power and strength to change us, gives us the power by the Holy Spirit to love others and consider them more important than ourselves. And ultimately, Lord, I pray that we would glorify you. Lord, we cannot glorify you through comfort and comfortable times and ease of life. We glorify you through trials. That when we go through trials, the world sees us as different. Or the world sees people that go through trials and they usually complain and they whine about it and, and feel self-pity and how they're being picked on by the, the world in those trials. But we need to look different. I pray that we'd be different when we go through trials. And when we go through those trials, we would, we would just shine you. We'd shine you and we'd have an opportunity to share how good you are and how amazing you are. So Lord, keep us dependent. Dependent on you. In your precious name. Amen.